0: ladies and gentlemen welcome to Southeast Whitetail I'm excited to record episode three this morning with dr. Mike Chamberlain uh, he's on the phone now dr. dr. Chamberlain thanks for joining me
1: good to be with you mark I,
0: I certainly appreciate your time um, I think this is a, this is a, a timely uh, topic right now as' it's March 3rd spring is uh, Really, it's almost here. My truck's covered in pollen here in Georgia, and um, I was at the farm and sent my farm in South Carolina, and and the green-up's already starting. The briars are starting to leaf out, and uh, the swamp's starting to fill back up with all kinds of vegetation. Um, Episode two, I spoke with Dr. Marcus Lashley about prescribed fire, Mm -hmm. and different things we can do. For habitat, uh, we talk, talked a lot about, of course, whitetails and the wild turkey, um, and so I think this is a good a good segue to talk with you as um, I think the leading uh, wild turkey biologist about what we can do um, for conservation standpoint. So, really, I would like to just jump right into this. Um, with it being the first of the year, we just had the State of the Union address. What, Dr. Chamberlain? What do you what do you think right now? I mean, it's is 2022. What do you think right now is the state of the union for the eastern wild turkey in the southeast, um, or really just the species across the board, the eastern wild turkey? Then um, what do you see has changed from 10 years ago in 2012 and then 20 years ago going back to 2002 with the population?
1: Well, pretty clearly we've seen declines across the southeast. I actually, I actually gave a presentation a couple of weeks ago on this um at the nwtf convention about the kind of the current status of birds and if you look from say 2004 2005 to now um, you're you're talking double digit declines in uh, harvest um, the number of turkey hunters pre-covid anyway had declined by over 20% um fall harvest is down dramatically part of that is regulations changes and part of that is is just a lack of participation but but spring harvest prior to covid has also has also declined and then you you look at what happened in 2020 in many south southern states the reported harvest was dramatically higher than it had been yet productivity uh, as measured by poults per hen in the summer, has been declining uh, consistently since about 2000, actually. Uh, we've seen about 20 years of declines in productivity, very, very slow declines. And when you look through time now, most southeastern states are showing less than two poults per hen, um, and that's not sustainable. Uh, basically, that's, that's a declining population and that's where we are in, in much of the South. Uh, our populations have declined. Some, you know, some states are showing much more dramatic declines than others, but uniformly across the board, turkeys have have declined over the past couple of decades.
0: I, I I've got two questions based on that. One, just quick one. You'd mentioned that there uh, we're about less than two poults per hen. Mm-hmm. What, and that's not sustainable, what is, what, what's the number that it, that makes the species sustainable? Pulse per hen, roughly? You know,
1: yeah, we've always kind of thought that three pulps per hen would be a number that would indicate, you know, a stable and or increasing population. And we haven't been at three pulps per hen in most states in many, many years um I th- and I, I won't speak for all agency biologists or anyone else but in my head 2 is kind of a benchmark if you if you're not above 2 then given a 50 50 sex ratio at hatching she's not replacing herself <clears throat> so yeah. for each end in the population you know she's not replacing herself if you're if you're not above 2 and And what we see in our trapping data echoes what I just said. Um, You know, we catch winter flocks of hens. And um, what we see is that the overwhelming majority are adults. We don't see very many juvenile birds at all. Um, And that's a real problem because if you look back, say, 25, 30 years ago, um, research showed that that ratio of juveniles to adults was actually more juveniles than adults, indicative of very productive populations, you know, with good nest success and good brood survival. And now we see, uh, 10 to 20% are juveniles and the rest are adults. So they're just, we're just not making turkeys at the rate that we, that they, you know, that we were a few decades ago. And, Again, that all you know that all ties up into a bow to show you that our populations you know are in decline.
0: And I know it's I'm sure. Well, I shouldn't say I know. I'm going to assume that it's not one major issue. But based on what you just said, do you think it's primarily habitat issues? Um, do you think it's uh, more turkey hunters on the landscape harvesting more combination of all, all, I mean, in any, uh, maybe predator issues. I know there's a bill up in Georgia, uh, that's coming up to allow trapping for, I think, raccoons Mm -hmm. year round. Is it just a combination of that thing? Um, I don't, I guess based on what I, is it mostly habitat
1: loss? Well, I I think most managers and, folks like me would would say ultimately it starts with habitat yeah um, you know if you look at what's happened from a habitat perspective in the south over the past couple of decades if you just go on google earth and just you know pick a, a spot and just scan back through time um what you'll see at a broad scale is a loss of habitat Areas that were once turkey habitat are gone. They've been converted to something else. You will see um, changes in the composition of forest. In other words, hardwood forests that are now pine. Um, You'll see fragmentation, where you've got new roads, new power lines, new infrastructure, rights of way. And what you collectively will see, if you, if you think about those three things, loss, conversion, fragmentation, none of that's good for turkeys. The loss of hardwood forest is, you know, turkeys are inextricably linked to hardwood forest in the South. That's what provides them winter habitat. A loss of hardwood forest, whether it's lost completely or converted to pine, unless the pine is managed appropriately, that's, a, that's an overall net loss for a turkey. Um, fragmentation issues are problematic because what fragmentation does is it benefits in many ways predators and not turkeys. Um, species like coyotes or raccoons who often hunt using their nose. Um, it benefits a species that can For instance, you take a thousand acres and you split it in half with a power line. Now on a a certain prevailing wind, that animal can hunt more efficiently. They can spend less time having to course through their environment to find prey. Um, You look at species that are edge obligate species like rat snakes that tend to spend time around edges. Well, if you increase the amount of edge, then you increase the amount of foraging habitat uh, for that species. So you tack all those things together from a habitat perspective and there really haven't been any positive changes for turkeys. Um, you then look at pine dominated forest and you know the prescribed fire issue is a contentious one but the bottom line is turkeys that live in pine forests need fire and we have seen a dramatic reduction in the use of fire over the past few decades, whether it be on uh, private lands, leased lands, um, and conversely on public lands, you may see that that fire has changed in how it's used. It's used at a, at a bigger spatial scale, larger burn blocks uh, on some lands, and that can be problematic. So Yes, habitat, to your first question, habitat is where it starts. And then all these other factors um, kind of become confounded with habitat because predation rates are linked to efficiency of predators and the availability of quality habitat for turkeys. Um, So the predation issue, is it's confounded with, with habitat. Um, and that's kind of what bears itself out in the data we collect and what we just talked about that we're not making as many turkeys and there's a, there's a number of reasons why, and and it all starts with changes in habitat and predator communities, uh, and the ability for turkeys to nest successfully and rear brood. I,
0: I just thought of something you, you were talking about, um, Fragment fragmented land uh, came in issue for to increase predation um, and not overall help turkeys. Do you feel like well, there's certainly been a big push, I, I would say, or or, or a, a, a resurgence over the past probably ten years for whitetail management. Uh, more of a some some will have it a. a, a holistic approach as far as land management, bettering habitat for whitetails. Do you feel like maybe any of those major habitat management tools that people do for deer in the South could be detrimental to, to wild turkeys? I mean, I, I just hear you, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but hearing you talk about you know fragmented land, I think maybe I'm wrong, but you talk about maybe like development and stuff like that. I talk a lot about fragmenting uh, the landscape for deer as far as having different, uh, you know, bedding cover, mm-hmm. palm trees that are burned. I know a lot of people, you know, they have fire breaks and they have a lot of roads for access. Access is, you know, great mm-hmm. for deer, but at the same time, based on when you said that, that that's increasing travel routes, travel routes or predators also, you know, edge feathering, creating right. the transition or are those, I'm not trying to tell people not to do it, but are those, are are those, some of those items detrimental to the wild turkey population possibly? Um,
1: Well, what you have to, you kind of have to, you kind of have to step back and look at how turkeys um, exist versus how a deer behaves. Um, You know, deer, deer hide and they, they go eat and then they lay down and they hide. And if they're, if they're attacked or they're chased, they run into cover and they, they stop. Um, turkeys, on the other hand, have to see. They have to be able to see. And their primary, and we all know this, if you watch turkeys, their primary mode of escape is to run. If they have to fly, that's their last option. Um, and if you kind of think about that, the way you would manage for deer in many ways is not always compatible with the way you would manage for turkeys because deer again they go hide and turkeys have to see so if you if you lay down on the ground or sit, get down on one knee and look at the landscape from a turkey's perspective versus a deer's perspective you know i'll use it, this example you You're standing in a food plot foraging on clover, and a coyote comes to chase you. If you are a deer, you're going to run off into this thick area, and at that point, you have the advantage over the coyote. The coyote has this wall of vegetation in front of it. The deer is graceful and agile and is able to weave its way through that stuff. And the coyote suddenly runs into a wall where he or she does not have the vision, does not have the sense of smell that they had when they were in that food plot. All right. Deer lives. Now you you have a turkey standing out there. Uh, They see that coyote coming, and their initial reaction is they're going to move themselves over to the edge of the plot. And then if the coyote continues to chase them, they're going to run They're They're running. If they run into a wall of thick vegetation, the coyote has the advantage. If they run into a, a sparsely vegetated, open, um, think of you know vegetation that's maybe knee high or less, now all of a sudden they can literally just run and the coyote can chase, but the turkey has the advantage. Um, they can run, they can fly, and the coyote loses. That's the fundamental difference in turkey habitat versus deer habitat. Um, so some of the things we do for deer, I wouldn't say they're detrimental. It's just that they, they're they not targeted equally to turkeys. They're not compatible in the way that many of us think they would be. In other words, you know, I, I, I met with a landowner recently who um, he was conducting prescribed fire on his property and and his primary interest was deer and when I looked at the stands um, I showed him I was like let's let's get out on one knee and kind of look at this from a turkey's perspective Um, I said if you are interested in turkeys at all then you need to burn a little more frequently He, he was burning on about a three or four year return interval and as you can imagine think about Georgia pine dominated forest there was a lot of sweet gum there was you know, species that would benefit from that type of fire regime. And it was really thick and there was a lot of browse, um, but much too dense for a turkey to use. And he said, well, I would like to, you know, I would like to be a little more balanced because I do have turkeys on this property. And I, you know, I, I recommended, and he's going to do this to to take some of those stands and burn them a little more frequently, maybe move them to a two-year interval which still gives you a ton of deer browse, but it, it maintains the, the plant community in a more open state than say a three or four year returnable, uh, return interval. And that's what he's, that's what he's going to do. So, um, sometimes if, if you're thinking solely whitetails, that's one thing, but if you're thinking white tails and turkeys, then you need to understand that turkeys will likely require a little more intensive disturbance schedule than deer do.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Going back to what you said earlier about um, poults poults survival, is running trail cameras where turkeys uh, feed and uh, nest and, and roost is that really the really the best or the only way that a landowner can monitor uh maybe maybe keep track of poult survival
1: poult survival is a real tough thing to do it's hard for us as researchers to do it because um to to really get at poult survival you, it, it's pretty invasive you i mean you you would approach the brood and actually mark the pults, which i i personally don't do in my work um we tend to look more at brood survival in other words did the brood as a collective unit survive not each pulp, but just the brood itself um, i mean trail cameras can help you out on that honestly um if you have you know if you have open areas or bottomland forest on your site and you're in the south by about june july if there are poults in the area you'll you'll you know they're going to be in bigger flocks because what they do is they amalgamate with each other so you know hen one she hatches 10 and six of them survive and hen two hatches 10 and five of them survive and the next thing you you see two hens and 11 poults and they're all you know they're as big as as a as a bantam rooster or something like that at that point their survival is pretty good from what we know if yeah. once they start roosting in trees with mom there's which is about two weeks after their hatch their survival is, is quite high um, so I don't know if that answers your question I mean trail cameras are certainly a way to do that some you know states just use observational data
0: mm-hmm
1: you know, the number of poults that are observed per hen in the summer from biological staff or from citizens that, you know, that keep records of it. Um, If I were a landowner, that's what I would do. I would, I would pay really close attention to what I'm seeing on my property, but I would also ask my neighbors to do the same thing. Um, You know, unless you manage a really large piece of property, you're sharing turkeys with, with neighbors and potentially quite a few neighbors. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know in a lot of cases, like a there's a property that I manage here near my house. Um, I have pretty good late winter habitat. I will hold some birds into the early spring and then they're gone and they're moving on to a neighbor's couple of neighbor's properties. And I rarely see poults, even though I have pretty good brood habitat. Um it's just that some of my neighbors have a little bit better brood habitat. And therefore, even though I work hard to to burn and really produce solid brood cover, I don't see many broods because my neighbor does. So knowing that I pay attention to, you know, what I see when I'm driving in and out. Um I may take a little detour, you know, when I'm headed out first thing in the morning is It's seven o'clock in the morning and it's July and I'm headed to work, you know, to work out there for a day. I may take a little, you know, 10 minute detour and and look around at what I'm seeing in some of the pastures and fields and areas that, you know, broods would hang out in. That's the that's my approach. Um, Yeah, because they are readily observable, you know, particularly mid to late summer. If you've got open ground and there's broods around, they'll be there.
0: Um, you'd mentioned brood, brood cover and that that maybe your neighbor, um, has some good brood cover. Can you talk briefly about, we hear a lot about, uh, brood cover, nesting cover Mm -hmm. and brood rearing. Can you talk about the difference to some for for someone that maybe doesn't know the difference between nesting cover versus brood rearing cover?
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is a question. I get asked this a lot, and it's gotten me, prompted me to actually, I'm, I'm thinking very seriously about starting a YouTube channel and posting videos of what, of what this looks like in different yeah, landscapes. You should. Um, but, like, here in the South, you know, turkeys live 11 months of the year trying to see, and then a hen will, a hen will spend one month trying to hide um while she's nesting what you see with nesting habitat is they will nest in almost any place we don't see any trends in what it quote unquote looks like it can be really thick hard to penetrate with only a single path in and out for her you know just literally a jungle it can be almost wide open forest where you can see her when you get close to her and everything in between um so i use the word plastic they're very plastic when it comes to nest habitat brood habitat on the other hand is not um nesting cover if she can hide in it or she thinks she can hide in it they'll nest there broods totally different um brood brood habitat is open early successional vegetation that poults can move through and If you want to, if you want to see the difference, um, kind of lay down on your stomach. And if you, if you can't see how to move, they can't either. So what hens are going to do is when they leave nest sites, which are often, you know, thicker, they're going to head to areas where they can stand there and watch for, for danger. And those pulps can move around under them and around them. So suddenly you go from, thick maybe thick at knee high or above to open at ankle high Um, literally in 24 hours when they hatch they go from we're hiding to we have to be able to see and move so brood cover is usually disturbed it's usually um, if it's in forest bottomland forests are often used uh, because you tend to have more canopy closure. You tend to have more open ground and hardwood forest. You tend to see broods, um, because they can't thermoregulate like an adult, they're susceptible to heating and cooling. So we found through looking at temperature gradients that broods will often use cooler sites, uh, which tend to be hardwood dominated if you have food plots and openings you'll see broods using that because they can often move around you know in that plant structure um typically there's some type of overhead cover where broods will use in other words places they can run and hide under something um, something that will allow whether it's shrubs or uh, i give you a big one uh, ragweed Mm -hmm. Ragweed, Um, it's miserable if you have allergies, but it's a great brood plant because it produces um, structure with bare ground under it. Um, Another place, another thing I see a lot of broods using is um, senescent food plots that were planted for deer in the fall. What I mean by that is uh, they were planted. Uh, maybe in clover and weed and oats or something like that. And they are now standing brown stalks of wheat with a green bed of clover under it. Um, As polts age, we see them use those plots a lot. And it makes sense because there's a lot of green vegetation, there's a lot of insects in that clover, but there's also insects on the stalks of that weed and oats there's also seed heads there so that when they transition from eating mostly insects to also eating seeds there's a lot of there's a lot of forage in those in those areas so to your question the fundamental difference between the two is I'm trying to hide versus I'm trying to see and and brood habitat has to be open enough where they the poults can move around effectively and then run and hide under something if if they're, you know, if they're attacked or fly, you know, once they're a couple weeks old and you know this, if you've approached broods in the summer, they just flutter away from you again, back to the, the analogy with deer versus turkeys, if they need to fly away, then it needs to be open enough for them to do that.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Um, let's talk about trapping for a minute. Um, um, I feel, I feel like trapping gets, gets covered, um, a good bit, um, kind of across the board and, um, but and there's certain people, you know, some people trap you around and they like it, you know, they, mm-hmm. and they do and the end, they do a lot of it, but let's say there's a, a, a landowner, property owner, and maybe a leasee that has a hunting club or track, they lease or have, or have permission to hunt and he or she would like to trap for predators, but they can't do it year-round. They, they'd like to set aside set aside some time during the calendar year to trap. They don't have much time. Is there a better time of year to trap for wild turkeys? I, you know, when people uh, talk to me about trapping for uh, – f- for deer, for instance. I mean, I know people do it year round and they shoot coyotes year round and there's a lot of, a lot of issues that, that can happen. But I, I, what I would say for someone for whitetails is that in my, in my opinion, at least, I think if you're going to go after predators and you only, you only have just a little bit of time, probably do it when fawns are being dropped, yeah. um, you know, pressure them then and get the fawns a chance. It is that similar to wild turkeys when pullets are hit, hitting the ground.
1: Well, what you what you'd want to do? The research has shown that in general, for for ground nesting birds, if you want to benefit them with trapping or predator removal, predator management, if you will, you need to time it just before the onset of nesting and brooding. So you you, you wouldn't want to go in in the fall and trap and then expect to have any influence on what happens in the spring now the issue you run into there with turkeys is just in in some states it's just legality issues you know trapping seasons will often end before the the nesting season starts some states it doesn't but um so that i would try to do it as close to when nesting begins as legally possible Uh, the other thing that you need to understand and again, research has shown this as well that that predator, you know, predator management needs to be intensive and it needs to be extensive. In other words, you need to, if you're going to do it, take a big swing at it, and you need to do it repeatedly. Um, don't don't expect to go into a property and trap a handful of raccoons, you know, a couple months before nesting season, and, and don't expect to have any benefit to that, um, outside of your, your enjoyment. Um, yeah. and the other, the last thing I'd say is, uh, work has clearly shown that predator management is most effective when it's integrated in with habitat management. So if you're, you know, when I'm asked about trapping and I don't trap anymore, but I, in a previous life, I, I actually got paid to trap. I, I would do contract trapping for landowners and I trapped when I was a graduate student and I, I loved, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I just don't have time anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've let my gear, you know, rust and I'm embarrassed about it. So I don't anyway, but uh, I would tell you, you know, people, if you're interested in trapping, do it. Absolutely do it. It teaches you, it teaches you patience. It teaches you woodsmanship, and it teaches you an attention to detail that you will not get through other activities because you're trying to put an animal's foot into an inch spot on the landscape. You're using, you know, and that, that can be difficult to do and it's very rewarding. I found it extremely rewarding Um, and I was good at it. And part of the reason I was good at it is because I spent time around other trappers that were good at it. And many states have programs where you can spend some time with trappers. You, you, can, you can reach out and, and find a trappers association and find somebody that can help you. Uh, I would say if you're thinking about doing it more, you know, by all means do it. Just be realistic in your expectations. Yeah. Uh, just be realistic. And, and if you're going to take some time to, to trout take an equal amount of time to try to improve the habitat on that same property. If you can, if you yeah. can, sometimes you can obviously, but, but if you can do so. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Um,
0: at our place in South Carolina, I feel that, uh, improving habitat has been, um, has changed the most in our Turkey and deer populations. Um, having good fawning cover, nesting cover. Uh, we do trap uh, a little bit in the off season and we do have a trapper that comes in during the commercial season, but that's mm-hmm. like the end of December to, I think, I think it ended March 1st, usually ends of the 1st of March, roughly. Um, that's, I, and, and that might just be for, for coyotes. So um, food plots. Um most people out there know the better warm, cool season food plots for deer uh-huh. at least. Uh, we've had a lot of success. Really, uh, planting chufa was a was a game changer for us to bring in and hold turkeys during the spring season. And uh-huh. what we've, A lot of what we did was we just took some larger fields, food plant fields, and cut off a uh, a section of it and just planted chufa. Right. Um, We do have some clover. Clover is, well, both of them, chufa and clover, there is maintenance that you need to do throughout the year. Um, Can you suggest some good warm and cool season plantings for wild turkeys?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one way that in many this is one instance where, in many ways, turkeys and deer are fully compatible. In most of the plants that you would plant for a fall, winter type forage plot for deer, many of them will also be used by by turkeys. Um, whether it's cereal grains like wheat or oats that, you know, turkeys will forage on that the green vegetation in the fall. Um, they will continue to forage on insects in the spring and they'll use the, you know, the old seed heads as well. So those are beneficial. Clovers obviously are, can be beneficial. The one thing I've noticed with clovers uh, that can be an issue uh, is when you end up with a really tall, dense stand of clover, uh, you tend not to see turkeys use that as much as stands that are, not as tall and dense in the summer and part of that is that if you're a pole you get soaking wet when you when you walk through that you know think about clover that's up mm-hmm. you know well above your ankles and your shin you yeah. know polts get soaking wet when they walk through that and that's problematic um, chufas are fantastic the issue that i've seen with chufas the, the two problems one if you have feral pigs they can be an, you know, they can take care of that field in a, in a night or two. And the other thing is just the size of the plot. You know, if, if you have, if you only have really, really small plots, Chufa may attract turkeys, but it may not hold them there just because they, you know, they, they take care of what's there and then they move on because they do really forge heavily on Chufa when they find it. So, yeah. I typically would tell people if you if you have pigs, just be be you know be careful because they could take care of what you plan in the night. If you don't have pigs and you have decent sized food plots, sure, yeah, chufa is fantastic.
0: Um, you you just said something said said something about poles that I had not heard before about getting wet. Mm-hmm. Um, is what uh what are the issues there i mean if they is it just it limits their mobility being able to fly i mean if they get rained on or or, or get wet what, what's the issue yeah, there
1: so, yeah so if, when poults are hatched they immediately start to molt they they start replacing feathers okay until they get juvenile feathers um and basically have some type of weatherproofing they can't thermoregulate So that's why they brood under mom at night. Um, If they get wet, that's problematic. If they get wet and it's cool, that's a death drought. So what you'll often see, you know, we have a year where we catch a really cool snap after broods are on the ground. We get four or five days of rain. You know, it's 40 degrees or 50 degrees. That's, That's not good. Because they they stay wet and they't can't, they can't all brood under mom only a few can at a time. so that, those are the scenarios where we often will see brood survival dramatically drop because not only are broods being lost to predators but they're dying from from you know weather extremes That's fascinating
0: I, I had not heard that before with pulse um. To shift gears, can we talk about roosting trees in the South? I, I um, specifically in your research and in your um, in your hunting experience, do you see a common theme in this in the South? As far as I mean, is there any type of common theme? Are they primarily, if they have the option, going to choose a hardwood roost? you know, mature pine tree? Is it just what's available? I mean, I know throughout the Southeast it's, you know, it, it's, it's primarily dense. It's not out in Midwest where there's maybe sometimes very limited trees. And then a follow-up is um, this is one of the questions that um, a friend of mine submitted is do toms rotate where they roost? I mean, let's say that they're, during the hunting season, do uh-huh. they, do they, you know, have a couple spots. I know people a lot of times talk about buck beds and that's been all the rage where they, you know, talk about where, you know, knowing where this buck beds and, uh, you know, I, I I've always preached in the Southeast. They, they, they can just pick and bed anywhere. I mean, I uh-huh. can be walking down a road, a dirt road in your property to go hunt and you might bump a bed on top of the road in a little patch of briars and, um, Mississippi state university just, the their Instagram account for Deer University just put out a, a pretty cool post yesterday about a buck um, during the rut. It mm-hmm. that was, that was collared and where he beds. And it's just all over the place. I mean, it's one yep. general area. But going to roosting trees, specifically for gobblers, what, what do you see?
1: Yeah, well, the first question about the type of tree, we see them roosting all sorts of trees. Um, you know, sometimes they're all, well, often they're on the transition between pines and hardwoods. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of that. Um, they may be inside of the hardwoods, but close to the edge of the pines. We see some birds roosting, you know, way up in mature pine trees. It's all over the place. Um, we have not looked, we don't spend a lot, we don't spend any time really, Trying to nail down the tree that they're in, we we really are more looking at roost as what's around that site. Like what what's around what's around him that would cause him to roost there. Um, I have a student that's actually doing that now, analyzing data on that because we have tens of thousands of roost locations. Just we get a roost location every night on every bird we track, so we have a ton of roost data. Um, as far as them roosting in the same locations it appears that sometimes have the strategy of they'll come back to the same place you know night after night but most do not do that most appear during the spring they'll have a handful or more of roost sites i'll say roost locations if you will um where they they may spend two nights in this location and then they move to another location. And then they spend the night there and they move to a third location. They spend two nights there. They come back to the original location for a night. Then they go to a fourth location. Then they come back to the second location and, and they just bounce around like that. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense to do that because – you know they're trying to do two things at a roost site. They're trying not to die, and they're trying to attract attention. Um, that's a tricky balance because you're you're sitting there in a tree where you feel safe, but you're vocalizing, which is attracting not only attention from from hens but also from predators. So th- it appears that there are certain places on the landscape that are just good roost and there's a lot of the landscape that's not and that's why we see which is really interesting to me we will see new we see numerous examples of this where a bird is roosted at a spot he leaves and goes somewhere else and another tom comes in and roosts in that same location that night Mm. And what that implies to me is there are certain places that are roost habitat that this bird perceives as that's a good place to roost. I can, I'm safe and I can project sound and not be harassed doing it. Um, That tells me that the way they perceive roost is very, very different than the way we perceive it. Yeah, We look out there and say, hell, they could roost anywhere. And they look out there and say, no, there's about six places in this home range where I feel comfortable doing it. And not only am am I the one that feels comfortable doing it, but other birds that are in the same population agree with that. And they roost in those same locations. Um, It also appears, and we're teasing this out now, some other work, I believe it was in Ontario, found this recently, um, that there were hub roost. In other words, there were there were some roosts that were much more important than others. Um, there were some roosts that Tom's extensively used, almost like the hub of a wheel. Like when they were here, they went in a bunch of different directions depending on you know where they were headed and what the day called for. And there were some roosts that were not used very often. So the implication was that there are just some roosts that are really, really important to these birds. And I, I actually have a student that's doing this. Now we're trying to figure out well, what is it about these roosts that are different? Uh, is there some vegetation that we, is there something we can identify that makes them that important? Yeah. And if so is that a limiting resource on the landscape? Is, is there something there? There's, there's some combination of, of environmental variables that come together to make a really good roost that we just aren't aware of, and if there are, how, how do we how do we account for that? Um, yeah. So we, we're we're looking at that now. Um,
0: hearing you talk about the roosting trees, I, I'm picturing some different areas of of our farm, and w- one question that that comes to mind at least during the hunting season i've jumped um or bumped at out of roost trees a couple times i think it was mostly hens a hen hen flock out of some long leaves that are probably i don't know maybe 15 years old mm-hmm. really not really not all that tall long leaf um you know, decent size, but I'll but I was surprised they were in there. But it was dense, you know, it was dense. Uh-huh. And it hasn't been thin yet. Um and then a lot of birds like to like to roost um in our creek swamp where there's, you know, there's really not that many tall trees. It's an older swamp, a lot of, you know, it's mostly lower vegetation. Um it's a good wide flowing water creek. Um very swampy and and they seems like they they fly into a tree and they kind of bounce around and they get a little centered over the Creek, but they can uh-huh. see better. Yeah. Do you find that turkeys would rather when they're in a roosting tree, be able to see better as far as predators, like birds flying in, or would they be in, in denser cover. If they're in open area, of course they would be more exposed. I mean, sometimes I, I can, I mean, from a distance, you can see, see, see the birds, you know, in, yeah. in these trees in the, swamps that are some of the what i would call the older swamps where there's a lot of old trees and they're they're constantly you know mostly dead trees Uh do they prefer denser cover where maybe they can't be spotted or or they could see better and open cover
1: well i think it you know again it's going to vary but the bottom line is um you know here in the deep south turkeys don't really have to worry too much about, about weather during the spring. Whereas, you know, in Northern areas, you'll see that birds will actually select some dense roof sites that protect them from, from wind and snow and, you know, cold temperatures, but we don't see a lot of that obviously in the South. Right. So I tend to notice that, you know, they're in, they're in places where they can see or, where a sound doesn't attenuate in other words it doesn't there's not a lot of stuff around them to chew up sound and break it all apart Mm -hmm. because they're trying to project that sound across the landscape um that being said i've i've seen the same thing you have i never forget i tracked some birds on a site in mississippi that at the time was owned by georgia pacific and um i had two birds that routinely roosted in at the time it was a 14 year old loblolly stand that had not been thinned and it was dog hair thick and those two birds roosted in that stand some, i'd say 60 70 percent of the spring they were somewhere in that stand roosting at night and i went to the roost sites and found several of them and i couldn't figure out why they were there honestly i mm. It, it didn't look like a good roost-like you know, location to me, but again, the way they perceive their environment is much different than the way we do. And, uh, I also think it's just individual toms. I had, a, I had a bird on a piece of property in Virginia years ago that roosted out in a clear cut, and he was roosted on a pile of logging debris, and about every three or four days, he'd be out in the middle of that, literally. I mean, he was probably three or 400 yards from the tree line he would roost on top of a pile of logging debris that was maybe 12 feet tall and he'd gobble his head off and then fly down in that clear cut and, and you couldn't get to him. I mean, you just you couldn't get to him. And he I would watch him, you know, in, th- with my binoculars and he would climb around, walk around on that pile of debris. And he had two or three locations where he would get to and gobble. And he was constantly scouting around him. You know, you could see him. He'd gobble and he would strut. And then he would come out of strut and he'd look around as if he was waiting for something to come after him. And then he'd move around and he'd get him, you know, a spot where he was comfortable and he'd gobble again. And he would spit and drum and and then he'd stop. And he'd look around. Um, whereas, you know, as well as I do, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll be sitting up on a bird in the roost. You can't see him, but you hear him drumming constantly. Yeah. constantly drumming you know this bird didn't do that and i think it was because of his location he just he knew i can't do that because if i just sit here and, and spit and drum i could get smoked so yeah. i'm going to yeah. have to project sound and then i'm going to have to pay attention to what's going on around me yeah. uh, i never killed that bird by the way he probably <laughs> he probably died of old age
0: <laughs> um get me started on that. I've had plenty of birds uh, take me to school season after season. Um, We've talked a lot about private land, and I've heard you talk recently um, about that. And again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, That the the, the future of the eastern wild turkey is probably in the hands of private landowners um, in the south. Um, and if you listen to this podcast, you're probably a fairly diehard hunter or conservationist, and so you, you some of the private land uh, habitat improvement uh, items we've covered before, or it's you, most people probably know about some of that stuff. So we don't need to dive into that. But there are, of course, a lot of pu- public land southeast. What what? what, what a, is there is there things that's tying back into the turkey conservation issues? Is, is there stuff that public land hunters should really know, be focused on, maybe things they can do, things they can report? I mean, you know, whether it's someone that hunts public land or maybe it's someone that's a leasee or or has access to private land, but they can't do anything. They can't burn. Mm-hmm. Can't do TSI. Um, is there something they should be focused on? And and that might segue into another question that I know we've seen a lot of changes. I think maybe, been last year or in 20, we saw some changes in Missouri uh-huh. and South Carolina, my state that I hunt as far as uh, season limits. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I mean, I'd, I think the answer is probably yes, but I, I feel like a lot of hunters should probably, you know, it's that balance where you might have tags, you might have two or three tags or the right to kill two or three birds. So should you kill two or three birds or maybe should you weigh out the aspects of your local population? You know, what are you seeing? Are you seeing a lot of pulse during the summer? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that something that, I mean, I, I think the answer is yes on that. But, um, you know, now a lot of based on what you said in the beginning to, 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 you know, open this up, talking about the 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 poll numbers have been decreasing. So I guess it maybe not so so much a question a statement that I feel like people should really, you know, what what's the saying? It's that it's just because something is legal or you have the right to do it doesn't mean maybe it's something you should or, you know, a- ethical as far as. You know, harvest, but right, um, right. I guess going back to the first question, public land hunters, yeah, yeah, leases. What what should be on their radar? Um, yeah,
1: that's a tough question, man, because you know, if you if you hunt your local WMA, your ability to impact that land is severely limited. Um, you know, it, it's almost cliche to say, well, you know, support your local. You know your, your state wildlife agency, because I think we all support our, in some ways, you know, an agency that that's charged with managing land. Um, the the leaseholder issue is also complex, as you know, because you know you you said it. In some cases, you can't do certain things to that property. Um, I think what I usually tell people that I ask this type of question is try to step back and identify what you can have an influence on. So, if you're on public lands or you're on leased lands, what options do you have? Um, in some cases, it may be that you, outside of uh, of trapping, you may have no no option. You, there's nothing you could really target. Maybe you maybe you can. Maybe you can adjust what you plant. Maybe you can, um, you know, you can see whether the lease, you know, the person or the, the company that's leasing the property, what options exist for, you know, what can we do? Um, I talked with someone recently who, uh, he was not allowed to burn, but they were told that they could, they could mulch. Mm-hmm. Um, And I basically recommended to him, I said, you know, you don't have the ability to burn this habitat, but you could open up these roadsides. Um, You could open up these food plots a little bit if if what the landowner is telling you that he's fully, he's okay with you mulching. Um, Then, you know, one day on a skid steer mulcher and you can, you can do a lot of good. You could open up these food plots. You could create areas where the birds can see. You could open up these roadsides and make them not such a predator trap that they are now, where you've got birds that are walking down the road and there's a you know there's a jungle on both sides of them. Is it ideal? No. It would be much better to just take a drip torch and burn it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the point was, this is something you can do that could make you know could be a positive. Um, it's just, you know, and you, you, we all know this, if you lease property, sometimes you're just, you're hamstrung almost entirely. Um, yeah. you know, you just can't, and and that, you know, that's a really bad situation to be in. And unfortunately there's a lot of us that are in it that, that, you know, we don't have the, the, the financial resources to own property, or if we do, it's small and, and therefore we lease properties and, we're kind of, you know, at the mercy of the, you know, the, the owner. Um, The one thing I will tell you is I've had conversations with, with private landowners who are leasing property, not so much companies, Mm -hmm. but private individuals. And when I was able to sit down and explain to them what my objective was, that, I wanted to improve the habitat in a way to where um, the populations of game that I want to hunt are more sustainable and they're going to be able to be maintained at a higher level. Um, In that same conversation, I will often note that that does nothing but improve the lease value of this property. And I'm willing to do the work if you're willing to allow me to do it. And I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to take responsibility for, you know, these actions. Sometimes I've been told, do it. Yeah. Sometimes I've been told, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but sometimes I've been told, yeah, I'm okay with you doing that. Or maybe, no, I'm not okay with one and two, but I'd let you do three and four, you know, Yeah. kind of thing. Um I would just say, you know, try to try to use whatever influence you have to impact the owner to to make them recognize that what you're trying to do ultimately benefits them through the value of their land and the the animals that are that are using that land. Um, that that's usually the response I give, and sometimes again it can be a really tough sell. Sometimes it's just it's, it's, I, I have a good friend that leases property that he gets really frustrated because he literally can do nothing except mm-hmm. write a check every year. Yeah. Um, one thing he was able to do was his neighbor that is a private landowner, um, he was able to, I actually gave him some information and he took it to the adjacent landowner. And the adjacent landowner is a big turkey hunter. And he was able to convince that landowner to make some changes to how he was managing his property using the science. And it's not benefiting the property that he's leasing, but it's benefiting the turkeys that are using that property. So yeah. he took this slant of, well, will some of my neighbors help me out? You know, if I if I give them information and agree to help them, you know, with sweat equity, would they be willing? to implement some of these changes and in that case he was and it 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 will be a net value to him Uh, it'll just take a little time to see it
0: It, it's you you hit on a lot of a lot of great points and it's it's tough you know I, i was um i grew up in a hunting club uh in low country south carolina for about 15 years um hunting and you know we did some habitat work but it's tough you know it, it's with most of the southeast being being private land there's that balance where you want to keep the the property owner or owners happy um in this day and age you know the the timber market starting to uh, starting to get better a little bit but you know as far as real estate mm-hmm. money's cheap right now and as everyone sees in the in the news uh, the residential market's on fire and has been for 18 months. Commercial properties picking up and, and so is land deals. I mean, uh-huh. I, I'm in commercial real estate and it, it's I mean, land is just going you know left and right selling um, in the southeast. So it, it's and I say that that is that if you if you don't own the land, it could be tough. Uh-huh. To, the, the the landowner allowing you to do something, but then you putting the sweat equity and not knowing because most people if they have a a formal lease, it's, it's, it's 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's that balance of you just don't know what's going to happen down the road. And then there's that, you know, there's that trade-off you hear a lot of times. Um, you see a lot with like, you know, duck properties where, you know, you want to better the deer habitat waterfowl and turkeys. But if you make the property that you lease have hunting rights on too well known, you might get bumped out. You yeah. Know, you know, yeah. people, people might hear about the property you have and outbid you, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So oh, yeah.
0: And, um, it can be tough. Um, here's a question that I have asked a lot of, um, a lot of turkey hunters. Cause I'm, I don't claim to be a good turkey hunter. I'm a novice. I've killed some, um, not as many. Um, I've had more humble me. Than I think anything, the <laughs> the wild game. Um, but I ask this question. And I don't know. I mean, that might not be a I'm sure that's not like a definitive answer, but you know, I feel like with white-tailed deer, if you do it for a couple of years, you know, monitor, keep records, your your data logs, your hunter observation, your harvest. You can figure out what your population is. You can look mm-hmm. at deer browse, you can do the trail camera surveys, you can get a pretty good feel about. Your deer density, roughly, and how much you know it was, and in, in quite frankly, in, the, in most of the southeast, you really can't shoot enough whitetails. I mean, if as long as you have good habitat, but turkeys, how, and like for our farm, it, 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 for instance, I, I don't, I'll have a handful of cameras on fields, and so I'll, I, I can, I can deter, I can pick out a, a handful of unique gobblers and jakes uh-huh. based on physical attributes but how do you know or what's the best way of knowing killing two killing so many birds is, is too many in a given season on your property doesn't matter how it doesn't matter what your bag limit is right i mean it is it you know one or two i mean i and i know we're talking about the southeast in general and it all, you know, there's so many variables. It depends, but what are some ways that someone could figure out how many is too many to shoot?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is we don't, we don't have any clue how many turkeys are out there. Um, estimating abundance has been one of the biggest problems for Turkey managers for decades. Now it was discussed in the 1970s and it's been discussed ever since, um, we're getting there. We're, we're getting to the point where we're going to, I think we're going to be able to, to come up with a minimum estimate of how many birds are, you know, on certain properties and, and extrapolate from there. But, um, if you look back at the recommendations provided many years ago, um, it was to try to limit your harvest to less than 30% of your birds, of your, your adults. Um, mm-hmm. So I get asked this a lot. Um, is that still the benchmark? And I say, understand that that recommendation was predicated on production that was more than twice what we are seeing now in the South. Um, we are producing far fewer turkeys now than when the, that research was done to, to provided, you know, that ended up in those recommendations. Um, So the playing field has changed. Now, if you're producing a lot of turkeys, you can shoot a lot of turkeys. If you're not producing a lot of turkeys, math logically would say you can't shoot as many. Um, So if you've you've got four or five toms on your property and you go kill four of them, then what do you expect to have happen for the following year? You know, if you have if you have 10 toms on your property and you're here, let's just say you're seeing a flock of 10 in in the winter. You're not going to keep those 10 in the spring. They're going to split up into multiple groups and you're going to lose some of those birds. They're going to end up down the road two miles or whatever. Um, So now you're you went from 10 to five, you kill two or three of them you're at 50, you know, 40, 50% plus harvest rates. If you're not producing a lot of birds, then you're not going to end up recovering from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I usually tell people, you know, if that, if that's a concern of yours, you need to, you need to look at kind of self-police, but you also need to understand what your neighbors are doing. Uh, I'll give you a good example. I, I have a, a friend here in Georgia that, He owns a really nice piece of property. They've they've got about 3,000 acres that they collectively manage. And they may kill, you know, three or four, five birds a year, which on the surface is really not, that doesn't seem like much. But their neighbors, they kill every bird they can. So they go from having, in a year, they may have 15, 18 toms on camera And just between themselves and the neighbors that they talk to, they can account for 10 or 11 of them being dead. Wow. Um, And that just doesn't, that's not sustainable unless you're, again, unless you're making turkeys. And if you're making a lot of birds, you can do that. Um, So I usually tell people, you know, 30% would be the highest I would go. And that's, again, predicated on, on data that, are not really reflective of what we're seeing across much of the South now. Yeah, less less than that would often be warranted, but it just really ultimately depends on the you know where you're at and what the local you know production is.
0: Staying on the topic of turkey harvest and filling tags, um, I've heard you talk a good bit about the pecking order no pun intended as far as the mature gobblers Mm -hmm. and correct me if i'm wrong or you can stop me that the hens will choose you know the the dominant or the time they want to breed with
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: so trying to relate that to you know most turkey hunters in the south let's say they have They've got some trail cam photos of a handful of gobblers, and there's some big ones, long spurs, big beard, whatever, or birds that they that they feel like are older. I mean, you know, based on what we're talking about with this, you know, conservation and numbers and, you know, uh, decrease in pulse per hen, is that something that a hunter should really consider? Or is it possible for the average hunter to, to even contribute tor- towards that? I mean, should they target – I mean, I mean, should they? Not that you know someone wants to do it, because should you not target like a a perceived dominant bird? No, is it
1: and to no. let them breed? Well, the bottom line is what the science suggested decades ago was that, and it, this is still true. Um, I didn't make this up, which I'm often accused of of just fabricating this. Um, this was written forty years ago. Mm-hmm based on what we knew and still know about turkeys. And that is that there are dominance hierarchies in place that structure how this bird behaves. And we know that hens will disproportionately breed with dominant birds. There is a obvious logical reason for that because dominant birds are the fittest birds in the population. They're dominant for a reason. Yeah, Are they bigger? Are they meaner? Are they more aggressive? Yeah. Yes, no, who knows? It doesn't matter. In their world, dominance carries privilege. Um, Therefore, managers decades ago suggested that the foolproof way to manage spring harvest for turkeys was to allow the bulk of breeding to occur and then kill toms. Because if you do that, it doesn't matter who you kill. Um, They've read. So it doesn't matter. And that's why you will hear managers you're in your state of South Carolina. The regulations change that that moved the season a little later and then had the, you know, the one bird or, you know, early in the season limit. That's yeah. there's a reason for that. And that reason is to limit the early harvest of birds, because we don't know one time from the other just by looking at them and um we know that early harvest matters we also know that when you open a turkey season most of the birds are going to die within the first week or 10 days of the season that's just reality and agencies know that they have data to show it clearly therefore you know use south carolina as an example they move the season back a little later so they're protecting birds a little longer and then they're limiting harvest during that early part of the season so that breeding can occur and then at that point you can harvest some percentage of the population and it doesn't matter yeah that's that's the science so that's why that season framework is in place do you anticipate other states
0: um making regulation changes similar to south carolina or to facilitate what you just said
1: well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you see regulations changes occurring all over the country now and people get get upset about it. And I understand that because, you know, regulations changes are contentious and they're contentious because we're passionate about what we do. We're passionate about this bird and we want to be able to hunt. So you start taking opportunity away and you start reducing bag limits and and that's not popular with some people. And I understand that because do I want to give up opportunity? No, I don't. But I also recognize that agencies are in a really difficult situation. Yeah. They, are, they don't have the resources to manage the landscape um, in the way that we would like. They are, they're allowed to control a very limited number of things, and harvest is one of those things. They can, they can appreciably impact harvest by changing regulations. Um, so I think what you're seeing across many parts of the country is just the recognition that populations are struggling in some areas and agencies are then charged with trying to react to that. And people argue and fight about it, which really doesn't do any good for the resource, but they do. And we criticize each other and we criticize the agencies and that doesn't do any good either. Uh, at the end of the day, the agencies make a change because that's what they can that's what they can influence. And um, yeah. so, to your point, yeah, I'm seeing. If you just look right now across the country, uh, within the past year, you, you you've seen changes in a number of states. Tennessee made changes. Georgia and Alabama made changes. Uh, Arkansas a couple years ago made changes uh ohio oklahoma kansas have all made changes you know within the past few years and yeah those changes are 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 not popular with some but but if you kind of look at it through the lens of the agency what else can they do at a spatial scale that's commensurate with how they manage the bird that's state level yeah yeah you know it's tough i, I don't envy yeah. their jobs i really don't nah.
0: No, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's kind of a lose, lose, damn if you do, damn if you don't situation. Exactly. Well, um, why don't we switch gears, um, try to move towards wrapping this up and, and, and let's, let's, let's have a little fun here. Um, I know you're a big turkey hunter. That's probably what got you in this field. What, what, I mean, it doesn't have to be in the Southeast. What's, one of your favorite habitats to hunt turkeys, any species, Turkey habitat landscape that you just absolutely love.
1: I like to go out West. I like to, uh, I like to go where I can see. And I I get claustrophobic here in in the Southeast. Um, (laughs) I I really like going and hunting places that are diverse, uh, Mm -hmm. Texas Hill country, the brush country, uh, Nebraska, South Dakota, Uh, places where i can see where i can scout where i can enjoy people that I, you know i've never met where i can see different perspectives and see birds and in areas that are unique to me that's what i really like i I travel every year to go Mm -hmm. um to go turkey hunt out somewhere you know out out of georgia and and um and i love it i just i cherish that because it's it's different and yeah out west is my favorite for sure do you
0: have a go-to call that is just that that you know it's your go-to across the board no matter where you are what species or just it it all depends on where you are
1: what time of year
0: well it just really depends with me
1: i mean i don't i pretty much only use a mouth call and a slate call i I don't use other types of calls often of course they're in my vest but i think i just carry them around because i feel like i should Um, yeah but i I pretty much am standing there sitting there with the same mouth call in and the same slate call in my (laughs) in my lap um within reason Um, i actually someone that follows me on on instagram sent me a slate call that he made and and I can't remember the per. – I'd have to look at my phone to get his name, and I, I don't want to say his name anyway on, on a podcast, but that is the sweetest-sounding slate call I've ever heard. It is so subtle and so quiet, and so – the pitch is so good. Um, I'll be using that for for the future. That and my mouth call, those will be the, the two go-tos. It is a sweet-sounding call.
0: You should definitely – give him some attention or mention him on, on Instagram. I need to I
1: need to reach out to him and see if he's okay yeah. with that because he he was very very nice and thoughtful to send it to me and I appreciated it and it is really a hell of a call um I'd be happy to get him some publicity but you know some people aren't really looking for that oh yeah yeah I,
0: I just thought about something uh um one talking about decoys. Okay. One, do you use decoys? And if so, what kind, not like a brand, but you know, Hen Jake strut or whatever. And then the follow-up is that, do you see, I mean, do you think there's been a, an increase in harvest as decoys have gotten better over the years as far as real realism? I mean, I, I know a lot of old school, traditional, very good Turkey hunters. Um, some of the ones I know, Personally, they don't really use turkey. I mean, de- de- decoys. Mm-hmm. some do, some don't, but some just like to be, uh, in a, you know, an open pine stand or hardwood bottom. And they want mm-hmm. the gobbler to come in to look, try to find what's not there, you know, what mm-hmm. they're hearing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, I don't want you to, you know, condemn decoys, but do you see any correlation with just as decoy- decoys have maybe increased in usage and then the more realism?
1: Yeah. Um, From a science data perspective, we don't know. Okay. There there aren't any data to show in any such relationship. I'll take my sciences hat off and put my turkey hunter hat on and qualify this statement under that assumption. I can personally say with what I think is certainty that I have killed birds using decoys that i don't think i would have killed otherwise um maybe not that day maybe i would have killed him a week later um i use decoys sometimes i would say most of the time i'm sitting here thinking back across all the hunts i made say last year um i'd say probably most of the time i did not um i'd say Gosh, yeah, when I – the Rio hunts, no. The Merriam's hunts, no. Uh, Yeah, I'd say most of the time not. Mm -hmm. One thing I've encountered, and I – this is just me. I don't – this is something you mentioned earlier you alluded to, is is this kind of policing ourselves, this idea. And I'll just say that um, I'm not big on that because – I don't want to impose my moral compass on someone else. I don't feel like that's my place. And I think all that does is create division. Um, So I, I will hunt. I have friends that I hunt with that religiously they want to use decoys. And if I'm hunting with them on their property, they're calling and they're hunting the way they want to hunt. And, I'm fine with that because again, I'm not going to impose my compass on someone else. I don't, I think when we, as hunters do that, we create a really slippery slope because then we're trying, we're judging each other. And if you're hunting within the legal frameworks of your state, who am I to tell you anything otherwise? And that speaks to the, you know, ultimately when it comes to season structure and bag limits, that's the agency's responsibility. It's their responsibility to design harvest frameworks for any species that are sustainable and that biologically makes sense. And if they do that, and us turkey hunters follow the law, we wouldn't need to have these conversations. Um, That's right. So ultimately That's right. this is not a turkey hunter issue. This is a, an agency and a, a regulatory issue as well as a land management issue, we need to do a better job managing land for for this bird. We have to make this bird a priority if that's going to occur. And if we do that, then we can we can reverse some of these issues we're seeing. And if we do that, then states would not have to tweak the regulations in the ways that they're having to because we'd have more sustainable populations. Um, so all this ties together in, in a in a Package, if you will, it's and it's complex, man. It's there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot going on, and uh, and some of the things we've talked about are contentious and they make people upset. And and I, again, I understand that. I, you know, I was a turkey hunter long before I was an academic. Yeah, it's. I think it hit hit the nail on the head. It, it's
0: uh, there's a lot to unpack with wild turkeys and turkey hunting and regulations and you know what you mentioned about policing ourselves as a hunting community, social media is relatively new. I mean, it's social media has really only been around for 12 years, 15 years, roughly. Um, so, you know, with Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, everyone that wants it has a platform. Yeah. I mean, everyone yeah. can voice their opinion. Everyone can share stuff and comment and repost. Things they like or don't like that other hunters are doing or not doing. So it, it it it's there's a lot of great things that comes from it. Like for instance, um, while I'm thinking about it, everyone should should, should follow Doctor Chamberlain at Wild Turkey Doc D O C on Instagram. Turkey Tuesday is is, is phenomenal. A, a lot of great content. I love it. But there's a lot of people out there that you know just like you said, cause division, um, in the, in the hunting community. All right. Well, I want to wrap this up with, um, three questions that, uh, I've, I'm going to ask every guest. Okay. Um, you're the second one and we have the answers that Dr. Lashley gave. So I don't know, I don't know if the audience is gonna compare which one maybe gave the best answers. There's not, <laughs> you know, there's, it's a test. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's no right or wrong answer, but uh, maybe there's some better ones. I don't know, but first question, um, what's one of your favorite wildlife or hunting books or a book recommendation you could give to someone in the audience?
1: Um, I'll be honest with you. I I tend to read, um, I don't read a lot of hunting books stuff to begin with, and I really never have. Um, I tend to read things that are dated older biology or research, such as stuff that Lovett Williams published years and years ago, writings from people like Wayne Bailey and others that were, they were the ones that were the, you know, they kind of ran the ship when it, it came to restoring turkeys and they were big Turkey hunters and they, you know, people like that saw things that I'll never be able to see. They, and they wrote about it and I, I get caught up in today's world and Mm -hmm. what I'm doing and what I'm studying and my hunting and the birds that I'm experiencing. I find it very, um, refreshing and eye-opening to go back and read what, you know, what did the turkey landscape look like in 1965? It was bad. It was bad. You know, what did it look like in 1975? It was rough. Um, you know, when I was a kid to go back and read what was going on when I was a child, not knowing that I would be where I'm at today, I see real value in that and it causes me to step back sometimes and look at myself and look at my own work. And, and reflect on it more carefully than I would otherwise. So I tend to go back. In fact, Lovett's book is right there on my, on my desk. One of the books he wrote is right there on my desk. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll take a break at lunch. Um, actually, when I hang up with you, you know, and I'll read a couple pages of, of this, that, or the other. And um, I see value in that. Yeah. I, I could see why
0: I could see why, uh, I could see why. uh Dr. Lashley said he, uh, San, Sand San County Almanac. He said yeah. he reads, reads that maybe once a year, every year. Cause it's, it's a book that, that he requires his students to read in one of his uh, courses. Um, I think there's definitely some, some similarities there. All right. The second question, what is your favorite wild game meal? Any kind of wild game? Yeah. Just one I of would- your go-to just, just favorites.
1: Uh, grilled venison with blue cheese sauce that my wife makes—that is fantastic. I cook; I'm the grill master. She makes this blue cheese sauce that's like a dipping sauce that is off the chain, man. It is so good. Okay, I, um, I've got my pen
0: ready to go. Yeah, it,
1: it is really good. If you email me, I'll send you the recipe. It's simple, 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 and um, it is so good. And you can store it for days afterwards. Um, uh, that's probably, I'd say that's one of my favorites. There's also, and this is probably cliche too, a good batch of fried turkey breast is something mm-hmm. that's hard to beat. Yeah. Really hard to beat. Uh, okay. D-
0: just going back on, on the grill venison, um, I like a tenderloin backstrap.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Cut up in the steaks, two inches thick, cooked. You know, rare in the center. Yeah, Oof, so good.
0: I'm gonna. I will email you that because I love blue cheese, and that actually sounds. That sounds really good. Blue. Yeah, you know, I mean blue. Any kind of blue cheese and red meat's great. The fried turkey. How do you prepare it?
1: I cube it up. I'll slice the against the grain and then tenderize it, mm-hmm. and then I'll cube it up into one inch cubes, and actually um, cover it in mustard. Huh and put a little liquid smoke in there with the mustard and, Mm -hmm. and then batter it. I actually use, I believe it or not, I'll use a a fish fry, a Louisiana fish fry, because it's got lemon in it. It's got a little hint of lemon in it. Yeah. And it gives the Turkey a fantastic combined with the smokiness of the liquid smoke, the, the sharpness of the mustard and that little bit of lemon fried, crispy. And it is, it's so good. Oh, we just had we just had that the other night. Actually, it, it doesn't last long in my house. It it gets destroyed pretty quickly. I can imagine.
0: I need to try that. I I've been smoking a lot of turkey lately, or for, or for a while. I'll brine it mm-hmm. and then and then smoke it. Um, all right. Last question: What do you feel, while turkey related or not? But what do you feel like is the most important? conservation topic issue problem in the southeast right now that should be i mean maybe it's common knowledge for everyone or maybe it's not what do you feel like that right now in the southeast is something that should be on land stewards or public land hunters is
1: anyone's radar um two things really stick out to me and i think they're related to each other is one is just how dramatic the landscape scape is changing right under our noses. Um which causes me pause because I think I try to think about what the landscape's going to look like in 10 years or 20 years. Yeah. And that it leads me to my biggest concern and that is who is going to step up when we step down. Who's going to be the people that champion the cause for hunters? Who are going to be the conservationists given how our society is changing and how we are losing touch with the land as a society? Who is going to, to be there to step up? And I, you know, I see it with students, and um, but that really concerns me. That that is something I think about every day. Is twenty years from now, when I'm very likely, you know, I'm either done for or headed in the direction of that. Who's going to be the ones that are fighting the fight? Given what you know, given what I what I've seen, the loss in hunters, the loss in license sales, the changes to the landscape, prioritizing conservation and prioritizing this bird or any other species that we cherish, that is going to become a real challenge moving forward as, a, as our landscape changes and our society continues to change. Um, that, need, in my opinion, needs to be on everyone's radar that picks up a shotgun and goes and hunts a turkey. Yeah. Um, we've got some work to do if we're going to prioritize this bird relative to all of the competing things in our world that suck resources and land away from it. Uh, if we don't prioritize the bird and the landscapes, they, they call home. The future of the species, you know, for my grandkids is, is, is not a rosy one. Right. Yeah. We, yeah. we have work to do as we do with it, uh, many wildlife species, not just turkeys, many, many species. I,
0: th- I think that's a good way to end it. I, it's a lot to, it's a it's a lot to digest and think about, but it, it's something that should be on everyone's radar. Um, whether you whether you own land, hunt public land, you you're a diehard hunter, or you're uh, just a casual weekend weekend hunter a couple of times a season, it's a lot to think about. I, I you know I, everything that I consume on wild turkeys is that it's something that is it very well might look significantly different for my kids. Um, and, and, and at yeah. least as, as far as I think the current generation or like my generation, I, I, I don't know if we've really have seen that for the most part. I mean, besides quail you a know, quail had dipped down, but a quail doesn't get the attention that, uh, I, I, I don't think that turkeys get or deer for that matter. So it's a lot to it's a lot to to dive into, but it should be on everyone's radar. And, and I, I think it starts with habitat. You know, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it, it starts with habitat. Talking with your neighbors, like like what you mentioned earlier, um, get a dialogue going, and just do doing what you can for the species. And 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 you know, and if you don't have the resource, the time. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm. Um, you know, I, any kind of free time I have, I'm out in the woods. Yeah. Yep. Right now we're doing light early successional disking. We've been on a lot of control burns. Uh, right now we, you had mentioned mulching. We have a mulching crew right now, uh, that just showed up finally, uh, it's gonna, uh, take down, a, a, a natural volunteer regrowth, uh, section. So there's a lot, it, if you can't do that kind of stuff, like I said, control what you can or do what you can join in NW- uh-huh. NWTF uh, uh, turkeys for tomorrow, just whatever you can and join something, give back um, and definitely contribute and respond to your local state agencies. If they're looking for surveys or hunter observation, anything like that, you know, they're here to help whether, you know, some people think so or not, Um we wrap this up one last question that just kind of popped into my head if all your years of traveling and hunting and consulting and and studying research turkeys you see any kind of correlation to an increased population on a piece of property that the hunting rights is with someone that doesn't know how to hunt well they can't talk to them (laughs) Um, Uh, I don't know. No, not to my knowledge. Because, for instance, um, you know, I, I've killed a handful of birds, um, but yeah, most of them just been, they respond to me, but I just, I, you know, I, I need a, I've got a, a hunt set up coming up soon where I, I'm going to be going with a, a biologist kind of tagging along with them. I got to learn how to talk to them. But I just didn't know if, if you hunt a lot and you don't really know what you're doing calling or you're spooking them away or they just kind of get used to there's just this jackass that calls and he doesn't know what he's doing. So it's, it's, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm building the population by just not being good enough to good enough to shoot him. I don't know. You, know. you
1: might be educating a few birds. That, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. That's, we uh, all do that.
1: I mean, we all, we all make mistakes. There's no doubt. I, okay.
0: So one last, just quick question, just real quick. I know you got to go. And I, you know, there's plenty of research that you have covered on other podcasts when gobblers start, stop, when they stop gobbling. Mm -hmm. What's your hunting tactic? You know, you have birds
1: in your property and they just stop gobbling. Figure out where they're going if you can. Try to figure out what areas they're using. And you might have to, you might have to change tactics, whether it be, um, you know, not calling often, calling yeah. really subtle, getting the bird. Um, I have a friend that actually his tactic is he'll call so softly that he's trying to put some doubt in the bird's mind that he actually heard of him. Um, he calls so soft, you can barely hear it. And I've seen birds come right to the end of his gun barrel. Um, wow. And he, he, his logic is that if I call that subtly, and he's curious he'll come check me out because he's not exactly sure what he just heard but he thinks he heard it versus yop 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 well i know there's a hint over there and you know i'm not interested in that i think you just have to change tactics it gets really hard and you know honestly in some ways some of the luster is lost when if they don't gobble it's not as much fun i mean it Yeah. I want a bird that's roaring his head off, you know, and or at least keeping me engaged. But he's keeping track, you know, he's letting me know where he's at and and that that builds the anticipation. And when they stop gobbling, I really I really don't enjoy it, honestly. Um it at that point it's it's lost the thing that draws me the most to it, which is an engaging with the bird. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely.
0: Well, Doctor Chamberlain, I appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I I, uh, I know we've picked up a lot of things we can share with our audience. Um, can you tell us where people can find you?
1: Yeah, so if you're if you're on social media, you can you can search on at Wild Turkey Doc. That's just Wild Turkey Doc. It's all one word, and you'll find my my Instagram account and my Twitter account. Uh, I only. I only post science stuff to Twitter. I don't person, uh, post any personal stuff. I will post personal stuff to Instagram um, pretty routinely. On Facebook, you can just search on my name. Just do Michael Chamberlain and you'll find my page. And I don't post personal stuff on Facebook much anymore either, but I, do, I post the same content within reason on all three plat- platforms related to turkeys um, on, on Tuesdays. And if you want more information, you can just email me. If you just go to the UGA's website, you can find my email address. And if you you know, if you want information or want any of the stuff I've published or any of the work I've done, I'm more than happy to, to share it by email.
0: Well, I would implore everyone out there to follow Dr. Gunther Chamberlain. It, it, it's, it's, it's science-based, research-based, data-backed. And like I've said before on this podcast, in my opinion that's how you become a better woodsman that's how you become a better hunter a better land steward figuring out the species what they need what they want what they do that's how you're going to improve your habitat improve your hunting skills course. No um, it's just you know I, I that's the kind of data the content that i nerd out on uh the research Backed science you know the the opinion pieces and the you know 10 ways to you know kill a gobbler from the roost with this moon or whatever that that kind of stuff i just doesn't you know it just doesn't do it for me i'd I'd rather read something where you've got someone that spent his life dedicating to to the research well thank you dr Dr. chamberlain absolutely your time and um uh, if I remember my, my wife, my, my, the, the one criticism my wife had, which I was surprised it was only one was that I didn't plug myself at any point. So, uh, people can find me at Mark Haslam, um, on Instagram and at Southeast southeast.whitetail and southeastwhitetail.com um, appreciate everyone's time and thanks for tuning in. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, I think we covered it. It was good joining okay. you.
0: Well, thank you for your time, and good luck this season. Yep, same to you. All right. Take care.